Well, if you have your Bibles, join me in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 through 16 as our text tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at a message I believe will be very encouraging and helpful tonight. Uh, it's entitled, Biblical Repentance versus Worldly Sorrow. Biblical Repentance versus Worldly Sorrow. I think this is a very edifying and helpful message uh, for us as we will uh, navigate through this chapter Last Wednesday, we were blessed with Brother Gadala from India. Wasn't he a blessing? A tremendous, tremendous ministry there. And uh, so we were able to come along and support his ministry. Beginning in verse 9, the, Paul says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, because Paul had written him a letter rebuking some sin that was going on in the church that needed to be dealt with. He says, I don't rejoice that you were made sorry from that letter that he wrote. He says, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner. And notice, there is a godly sorrow that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But notice the rest of verse 10. It says, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So there is another kind of sorrow that does not produce good fruit. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye were sorrow, that ye sorrowed after a goodly, godly sort, and uh, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourself, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things ye have approved yourself to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceeding the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed, but as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting which I made before Titus is found a truth. Because when he wrote the letter, he boasted to Paul, or Paul boasted to Titus by saying, uh, I really believe they're going to take this well. I really have the best hope for them that they'll respond in the right well. And he said that was found to be true. Verse 15, and this inward affection is more abundant toward you while he remembereth the obedience of you all, how that with fear and trembling you received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Father, thank you again for your word tonight. I pray that it would come alive to our hearts. Teach us. May your Holy Spirit uh, take the scriptures and implant it into good soil. I pray that as Christians that you would sanctify us. May we walk before you in spirit and in truth and love. And Lord, I pray that you would be our chief joy and that all things we do would be for your glory. If anyone tonight doesn't know Christ, may tonight be the night of their salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said... Amen. You may be seated tonight. So a couple weeks ago, we had looked at the first eight verses of chapter 7, and we had spent a couple messages actually navigating through uh, the, 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 the places of rebuke that need to happen. And the first one is inwardly, and the second one is outwardly. We have to deal with sin that is in our own life, and then we have to deal with sin that happens in the lives of other people. And in verse 14 of chapter 6 through verse 1 of chapter 7, he's dealing with sin that has to be dealt with in our own life. Then chapter 2, or chapter uh, 7, verse 2 through um, 
16, he's talking about the response uh, that, that we need to deal with sin in other people. And here is a response of a pastor who has been grieving over those who he had confronted uh, in the church at Corinth and the sin that was going on there, and it had broken his heart. Uh, Paul spoke often in the New Testament of weeping for the churches, um, people that were enemies creeping into the churches, causing disruption. Sometimes there were false doctrines that were coming into the church that he would have to confront and deal with. Uh, these churches, uh, the church especially at Corinth, had personally wounded Paul uh, very much. They had so grieved him, in fact, that nothing got Paul closer to actually getting out of the ministry and calling it quits than the church at Corinth. He had been beaten down by them. His heart had been broken by them. There was an anti-Paul faction that had risen up in the church at Corinth. Uh, and you say, did they not have good leadership there? Paul was the founding pastor. Uh, you have uh, uh, Timothy had been there. Paul had been, uh, Peter had been there as pastoring Apollos. They had some of the greatest preachers. Uh, and, and, and you think, how could they have spoken bad about Paul? Like, what would you say? And, uh, and so if, if, if he faced uh, accusations in that church, you know, every pastor is going to face some sometimes of false accusations, but, but, uh, but Paul was facing a lot of things. And notice what Paul says uh, in this middle of this verse, uh, this section of chapter 7, verse 1 through 8, verse 5. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, our flesh had no rest, uh, but we were troubled on every side with outward fightings, with inward fears. I mean, he's in the middle of God's will, and he is surrounded by intense pressure. He is doing exactly what God wants him to do, and it is pressing him both inwardly and outwardly. And just understand, sometimes the will of God will take you to a place that is not easy, that is difficult, but he doesn't do it to hurt you. He does it to grow you or to use you to be a blessing to other people and to, to increase their faith as well. But people often do not understand the grief that they can cause others with their sin, especially their parents, their pastors, people who love them. Again, the grief was so heavy for Paul that he wrote back in chapter number two uh, about how an open door was given to Paul in the city of Troas, in north, north of Ephesus. And he said that God had opened a great door and there were many people coming to Christ. Great things were happening. But he says, my heart was so burdened because he had sent Titus to uh, Corinth and Titus had not returned. And, and Paul literally left the open door, the gospel ministry, the, the blessings that were going on in Troas, because Paul was more burdened about how the church at Corinth would respond to his letter and how they would, re would they repent, would they get right. He was more concerned about that church getting right than he was about the souls being saved in Troas. So he left Troas. He left the open door God had given to him back in chapter 2, and he journeyed north to find Titus. He was so burdened. I just want you to understand, this is Paul in a place where he is, he is struggling, he is grieving. And just understand, when you and I choose to live in sin and rebellion, it can be so grievous to other people. You know, growing up, I had no idea as a rebellious kid the grief that I caused my parents. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't understand that when... Uh, my mom and dad are working a lot of hours, doing a lot, and, and you know, you come home and you give them lip. You know, you're going to tell me I need to do the dishes? Yeah, I uh, pay for everything here, son. 
heating, air conditioning, you know, I'm, you know, I helped you. It's just everything you have, your food, all, you, you have no idea, the insurance, everything that they take care of you, running you to ball practice games, and then they ask you to do some chore and you're going to mouth off. You know, just the selfishness, the self-focused, the absolute um, inward uh, mentality is just so, so bad. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I had no idea how much of a blessing I could be when I loved the Lord and, and, and honored my parents. And so just know tonight that, that you have a great impact on everybody around you. When you do what's right, it's an incredible blessing. But when you choose to do what's wrong, it can be a, such a burden and, and a discouragement. And so Paul confronts this church due to its sin. Uh, we learned uh, last time there's four things that you have to understand when you confront people in sin in a biblical way. There's a biblical way to confront others. And the first thing is you must uh, confront the sin in your own life before you can confront the sin in their life. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 7, wasn't it? He said, get the, get the wood out of your own eye. I'm paraphrasing and before you get the wood out of their eye. Get the, get the beam out of your eye before you can get the speck of dust out of their eye. You've got you to be right with God. But once you're right with God, then you can help them get right with God. Secondly, um, confronting sin must be motivated by love for others, not hate. Paul dealt with this in verse 4 through 7. Uh, confronting people who have sinned must be done with a spirit of love, uh, not out of anger and wrath, but out of love and humility. You go to them motivated by uh, love for them. Thirdly, confronting others in a right way is to desire their repentance and restoration. You don't just want to condemn them. So confronting people must be done in a way that you want them to to, to, to get right with God. You're grieved because they're out of line with the Lord. You're grieved because they're not where they, they, they should be with the Lord. And so that's what you're seeking to reconcile. And uh, number four, confronting others means you're willing to forgive instead of retaliate. You're, when they get right, they, they repent. You're willing to forgive them instead of retaliating. You mind turning me down on these two front speakers just a little bit. I feel ringing up here. And so tonight I want to look at the fruit of biblical confrontation the fruit of biblical confrontation. And, and, um, and the first point here, look at verse number nine. He says, now I rejoice. He says, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. So there's the, the, the two fruits that, that come right away here in verse number nine is joy and comfort. Because of Paul confronting them the right way, which was, again, after he made sure he was right with God, he came to them in love, he sought their repentance, he was willing to forgive. The fruit was they were filled with joy and comfort. Paul and Titus were, and this was such a blessing. Six times in this chapter, the words joy and comfort are each used. Verse 9, he says, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but you sorrow to repentance. And, and you see his motive is pure there. Uh, he didn't confront them just so they feel terrible about their sin. Often people can confront somebody, but their goal is not that the person responds and grows from it. They just want to pour their wrath out. Boy, I've been guilty of that before. I remember times in life where you, maybe you're upset with your child or your spouse or someone else in society or somebody who's upset you. And, well, I sure hope you know how this has affected me. You've really made life hard on me. And, and we're not really looking to see them growing from that. We're not really seeing, seeking to see them restored and to, to be built up. We're just wanting to vent. And that's a sinful spirit. Listen to me. When someone sins against you and does you wrong, make sure just because you've been wrong doesn't mean you have the right to sin back. Right? Just because their attitude wasn't good doesn't mean our attitude has to be bad. 
We, we have to understand that, and, and I can tell you, you will be tempted to sin back, <laughs> right? It is whether, you know, in, in the flesh, it's like, you hit me, I'll hit you back. But in, in the verbal area, if you speak that way to me, then I'll speak that way back to you. You splash pride on me, I'll splash pride on you. You, you, you give me attitude, I'll give you attitude. And, and that's the sinful spirit. And, and Paul didn't have that. He came to them in humility, he came to them in love. And he says, listen, you were made sorry, but that wasn't my goal. My goal was that you would sorrow to repentance, and that's what I was excited about. So sorrow isn't the goal. Repentance and reconciliation is. You know, if a patient comes to a doctor's office with a splinter, they got infected, the goal of the doctor isn't to make the extraction the most painful they can make it, right? Though it will be painful, the goal is to get the splinter out, to remove what is causing the damage, and to do so as carefully and kindly as possible. In confronting others desires the extraction of the sin in the person's life, not the pain of the extraction. Does that make sense? So Christian, it is, that, is that how you deal with others? Is that how you deal with your friends, your relatives, your, your spouse? When, when you and your spouse have a disagreement, do you, do you want them to feel the pain or do you want to see them have the sin removed from their life so that they could be clean before God? Do you, do you want to hurt them for hurting you, or do you desire to remove the sin that has first and foremost offended the God that you love most? I think that sometimes we, for, we often forget that when a sin is committed, that God is the one offended. It's not primarily us. God's the primary one. Whatever somebody's done to you, they've offended God worse than they've offended you. And if God, who's been offended the most, is willing to forgive, who are we who are offended the least unwilling to forgive? Does that make sense? And so Paul's joy was in their repentance. Paul saw repentance as the victory, the right fruit of a biblical confrontation. And repentance is that Greek word metanoia, and it means to think differently. You change your mind about sin. But it doesn't stop there. It, it, it moves into action. It is Repentance is you agree with God about your sin, that it is as bad as God says it is. You agree with God, you turn from your sin, and you turn to God in obedience. Repentance is the road out of the mire of sin into the clean life before God. It is the pathway to freedom, and it's the greatest gift, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us because it's the way of escape. It's the way out of of the prison of sin. And true biblical repentance is preceded by sorrow, a sorrow that sees sin as offensive as it is. Have you ever been swallowed up by doing something you knew was wrong against someone or you sinned against God and you, and, and, and you find yourself a day later, a week later, even a month later still apologizing for it? Hey, I'm so sorry what I did. And you're just buried under that. Um, by the way, when you come to God and you seek repentance, you don't have to keep asking him to forgive you because that turns into a works-based relationship when you do that. So I have to pay penance through repetitious prayer of seeking forgiveness. And if I ask him to forgive me enough times, then he'll forgive me. It becomes this works-based thing. But the Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Amen? 
So instead of asking God 50 times to forgive you of something when you sin, seek his forgiveness, and then the next 49 times, worship him for the forgiveness that he promised to give you. Stop asking him for the gift and praise him for the gift. Does that make sense? Or do you think you have to earn it again? Lord, if I pray this again, and I, and I say it again, and no, we're robbing God of worship because we don't believe he can actually pull off the forgiveness. Lord, I don't, I don't really believe 1 John 1, 8, 9 because I don't really think you've forgiven me. So I'm going to have to pray this again. Lord, I, I need you to forgive me. No, what's happened is uh, you, you feel the weight of the sin. And, and, and that, that, that sorrow doesn't mean that you always need forgiveness. The sorrow means that you're recognizing the gravity of the sin. And, and sin brings sorrow, but it should bring you to repentance. It should bring you to understanding that you've offended God. So Paul praised the Corinthians that their feelings of sorrow did not stop there, but went on to produce true and genuine repentance. And repentance is the other side of faith. Faith is going toward God. Repentance is going away from sin. You know, God and sin are in the opposite directions, right? That is why you cannot truly say that you've come to faith in Christ without moving away from sin. It doesn't mean perfection in life, but it does mean the direction of your life is toward Christ and away from sin. You don't earn salvation. It's all by grace, all through faith, but true faith is turning to Christ and turning away from sin. Scripture ties faith and repentance together as two inseparable truths. In defining the message of Christ, Mark 1.14 says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Read the rest with me if you would, church. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus began his ministry by saying you need to repent and believe the gospel. It is, it is again, an inward change that results in an outward change. It isn't an outward change that does the inward change. It's, it's truth that comes into the soil, and if it lands in good soil, you turn away from what is bad and sinful and wicked and turning to Christ, who is your Savior, and defining the message of Christ that Paul was sent to preach by Christ. Paul says in Acts 20, 21, uh, he says, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is a turning away from sin and turning to Christ. That's why true salvation always produces a true repentance. Now, a key difference, secondly, between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, verse number 10 says this, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Uh, in other words, when you repent and do that, you don't need to repent of, of making that decision because that, that's a great thing. But the sorrow of the world worketh what? Yeah. Death. Yeah. This is important to know. This is what we might call in our world depression, um, despair, and that leads to finally destruction. So it's discouragement that leads to despair, that leads to destruction. You just, you just continue down that path of going down further and further. Sorrow of the world speaks of remorse and regret. It will lead a person into despair and death if not remedied. Uh, 
sorrow of the world is a wrong response to a wrong action in life. It is to know you have sinned, but instead of getting right, you get wrong. Instead of turning to God, you turn to grief. You want deliverance from the pain of sin, but you don't come to Christ for the cleansing. Instead, you turn somewhere else. People turn to a bottle. They turn to a drug. Most people on drugs are doing it because they're trying to sedate worldly grief and sorrow. We have to come to God and say, this is the only one that can heal me because he's the only one who can forgive me and cast my sin as far as east is from the west. Often the person wants deliverance from the pain of the sin, but they don't want to give up the sin, so they live in misery. They feel terrible about it, but they just keep doing it. People either listen to the word or they listen to pain. I've said that a thousand times from this pulpit. If you won't listen to the truth, you will feel the weight of living in opposition to that truth. One commentator writes, The sorrow of the world is remorse, wounded pride, self-pity, unfulfilled hopes, which has no healing power, no transforming, saving, or redeeming capabilities. It, is produce, it produces guilt, shame, resentment, anguish, despair, depression, hopelessness, and even in the case of people like Judas, death. Misery. And what is the outcome and fruit of true biblical repentance? It is salvation. MacArthur says this passage is incompatible with the teaching that repentance is not necessary for salvation. The progression it reveals is obvious. Confrontation of sin leads to sorrow, which leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. It shocks me. It just frankly shocks me that people who say you can be saved without repentance. I'm like, have they read their Bible? I mean, it's so clear, isn't it? I mean, what did John the Baptist preach? Matthew 3, 2, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people say, well, repentance is a change of mind. It doesn't mean a change of action. Let me ask you this question. If your spouse said, I'm going to go to the store to get some ice cream, very noble activity. You go into the other room to do something. You come back in and they haven't left. You would say stuff like this. If you, are you still going to the store? And they say, no. Your response would be, did you change your mind? Why would you say that? Because their actions changed, right? They must have changed their inward thinking because they did not do the outward right action of going to the store, you know, you know, and when, 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 you know, when somebody says they're going to go to the store, then your hopes get up. Does anybody do this? You, 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 weren't, you weren't thinking about it. You were maybe like, I'm going to fast tonight. I'm going to be spiritual. And then they, then they bring up a temptation like that. You're like, it's Lord, tomorrow night, where it's on. You know, we're getting right tomorrow night. And then when they say they haven't, then you're carnal in the flesh. And well, then I'll go. But the point being simply is, is if somebody says they're going to do something, and they don't do it, they must have changed their mind. True inward change and a change of the inward will come out in the external. Jesus' message in Matthew 4.17 was, he began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. You know, what did heaven rejoice over? It says, heaven rejoices over one sinner that repenteth. 
After Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, they said, what must we do? He said, repent, believe the gospel. What was Paul's message? Repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. True salvation is a repentant faith. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but all should come to faith in Jesus. Is that what it says? No, it says that they should come to repentance. Because repentance is another biblical term for salvation. Anybody heard of the name Mickey Cohan? Back in the 50s, 60s, some of you guys who grew up around that season of life or knew them. He was a flamboyant criminal of his day. He uh, became a professional boxer, but then he turned into a, uh, basically a, a thug, a street lord back in those days. And, um, and, and he began to talk about becoming a Christian, and he even talked to men like Billy Graham, and he made a profession of faith at some point, but he never wanted to give up his lifestyle. And, and because he never gave up his lifestyle, because he was a gangster... Um, some of the Christians who began to confront him said, you know what, you, you, you need to, there needs to be some change in your life. To which he famously replied like this. He said, there are Christian football players, Christian cowboys, Christian politicians. Why not a Christian gangster? And in his life was found the lack of repentance. It's saying, I want to come to Christ, but I want to keep my life. Jesus said, any man who comes after me, let him deny himself. That is a salvation verse. It is, it is, to come to Christ is coming to the end of you. It's you giving up all that you are to have all that he is. Is that a good deal? It's, it's you saying, Jesus, you're Lord and I am not. And if he's Lord, I don't live the old way, right? It's bowing my knee to the king. Whosoever shall confess Christ is Lord, it's not saying, Jesus, come into my heart. It's saying, Jesus, you're the king of my soul and eternity in my life, and I bow my life to you. It's not perfection. All of us still fall short, right? We, know, we don't live perfectly, but it means I'm in a new direction now. I'm on a different road, and it's where Christ is my king. Now, I would say this. Repentance must never be thought of as something that you have to do before coming to salvation. Repentance is part of the salvation it is as I turn my faith to Christ, I simultaneously turn away from myself and my sin. I turn away from unbelief. I turn away from sinfulness to Christ. I turn in faith to Him. And who brings us to that? Romans 2, 4. It is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. His goodness brings us to Himself. So if you have doubts tonight about coming to Christ, you either believe yourself in your doubts and distrust Christ, or do you say, I reject those doubts and I believe in Jesus more than my doubts. I believe in Christ. I, I, I believe he's better than what I am. I, I, I believe he died, was buried, and rose again. I believe he is Lord and I'm not good enough. I have sinned. I violated God's laws. I would be guilty before God. And, and it is the grace of God that brings us to a sorrow over our sin. And if you can continue down the old path, you're probably clearly not on the new path if that continues. Jesus said, that's why he said, you'll know them by their what? Yeah, after time and truth hold hands. 
So the fruit of true repentance is salvation, restoring our relationship to God. And specifically what Paul is uh, referring to here with himself in the church at Corinth is it restored his relationship to to the Corinthians. So in salvation, because he talks about it generally here, godly sorrow worketh, re, uh, worketh repentance to salvation, but in this specific sense, it restored his relationship to the Corinthians. Because the word here for salvation is soteria in the Greek, it's where we get the, the soteriology from, but it, it means to restore what was broken. It, it's, it's, it's a restoration, and, and that's what it did. Uh, whereas godly repentance produces salvation, worldly sorrow leads to death, You know, death in the Bible speaks of a separation. Worldly sorrow produces separation from God, from man, from life. You know, Judas was sorry for betraying Christ, but it was a worldly sorrow that led to him committing suicide. Let me give you some differences between biblical repentance and worldly regret or worldly sorrow. Repentance is from God. Regret is from the world. Repentance is a sorrow that draws people closer to God. Regret drives people farther away from God. The night of Christ's betrayal, Peter betrayed Christ with his lips, yet went out and wept bitterly and was forgiven. Judas betrayed Christ, regretted it, and went out and hung himself. Repentance brings you to a place of confession and forsaking sin. Regret only brings you into the hand of Satan. Repentance leads to salvation. Regret leads to spiritual death. Regret is being sorry. Repentance is being sorry enough to stop. Regret leads to a temporary change of your life. Repentance leads to a continual change of your life. When you truly repent, you'll, it'll, it's evidence. It's why you're here tonight, right? And you can, you can be regretful and be here tonight, but I can tell you, you won't be here in another few weeks or another few months. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they no doubt would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made evident that they were not all of us, as John says. H.G. Bosch wrote in Our Daily Bread, there is a radical distinction between natural regret and God-given repentance. The flesh can feel remorse, acknowledge its evil deeds, and be ashamed of itself. However, this sort of disgust with past action can be quickly shrugged off, and the individual can soon go back to his old wicked ways. None of the marks of true repentance described in 2 Corinthians 7 is found in their behavior. So let me give you some biblical examples of this. I'm going to run through 15 or so of these quickly. Um, I know, that scared everybody. They're like, when you name more than two things, we're worried. Um, quickly, now, Joseph's brothers, Genesis 42, 21, and they said one to another, we remember when they came before him, the whole story, I can't re- recite the whole thing for time's sake, but, um, but they didn't know it was Joseph, and they came to Egypt. And uh, they had sold their brother into slavery, and this is 13 plus years later. He's now the right-hand man of Pharaoh. Uh, And they said one to another, we are verily verily guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the anguish of his soul while while he besought us, and we we would not hear him. Therefore, is this distress come upon us? I mean, they are carrying it. Verse 22, and Reuben answered and said, saying, Spake I not unto you, do not sin against the child, and, and ye would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. 
And do you remember how Joseph kept testing them to see? Um, they wanted to see if they were repentive. And so uh, one of the last times they come, they don't know it's Joseph. He puts a, one, of the, one of the cups in, in, the, in the youngest brother, um, Benjamin's satchel. And when they leave, uh, he says, go back and get Benjamin. And, and the guards go and get Benjamin, bring him back. And all the 12 brothers are like, you know, you can't take him. And uh, he says, no, only him I'll keep. The rest of you guys can leave. Because Joseph wanted to test them to see, did they truly repent because they sold me out? Well, they sell Benjamin out. And, and Judah comes and says, take me instead. And they said, we, we cannot let him go. And, and um, Jesus, by the way, coming from the tribe of Judah. And, and Joseph couldn't hold back anymore. He began to weep and reconciliation was made. But you see where they had true godly repentance. His brothers came to that. Pharaoh, did he have godly uh, repentance or worldly sorrow? You know, th there, there's about a dozen people in the Bible that made this phrase, I have sinned. Uh, Pharaoh said that multiple times. Exodus 9, 27, Pharaoh sinned and called Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. Exodus 10, verse 16, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. So he's confessing it. Now, he says, now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once. You know, one of the stupidest things he ever said was, he's like, you know, take away the frogs. Uh, he's like, when do you want me to take them away? He's like, after this night. It's like, you want one more day with them frogs? Like, what in the world? Uh, this is a side note. But, but you see where he, he kept reneging, didn't he? He would say, you know, I forgive you. And then, or he says, For, you know, forgive me. You know, I've sinned. You know, I can let you go. And then he would say, no, no, come back. And he would bring him back. And I think about Balaam in the Old Testament. Did he have worldly sorrow or godly repentance? Numbers twenty two thirty four. And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord. Remember when he's beating his donkey? And the donkey's like, would you quit beating me, you fool? You know? <laughs> He's like, and the donkey is like, haven't I served you all these years faithfully? Have I ever not walked? And the craziest thing is Balaam answers him back. He's like, why strikest, in the only the way the old English could say it, thou strikest me, you know? And He's like, because you stopped and you crushed my leg against the, you know, I'm like, you're, this is comical. This is crazy. Like if your donkey's talking, you would stop and be, I would have jumped off. Like, I'm sorry, you know. It's crazy. And Balaam, Balaam uh, said unto the, and the angel Lord was revealed to him, and he says, you would have died if that donkey didn't stop, because a donkey could see better than you as a prophet. And, uh, you know, and Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I, I, I never forget there was a pastor one time. Anybody know Dr. John Rawlings? Um, he was a pastor down in Cincinnati, had a church of about 5,000 people back in the day, just a really thriving ministry. And one day a, a lamentable pastor came to him and, and he, said, I, uh, he said, you know, Dr. John, I just, I just feel like I can't preach well. I just don't do a good job. And he's like, listen, if God could speak through a donkey, but he used the other word, he said, he can speak through you. So he said, I got back in my pulpit and preached. You know, I just suck it up, buttercup, go back and preach. Uh, he wasn't real gracious. He just let you say, you know what it was. But, but here's Balaam getting talked to by his donkey, and he, says, and, and he says, I have sinned, for I knew that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases thee, I will get me back again. But, but Balaam wasn't, it was a worldly sorrow. I mean, he, he wanted the money, and he goes off, and, and uh, when you know that story, you'll, you'll understand that. Job, 
he had godly repentance. Job 7.20, he said, I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee? Uh, in, in Job 42, he says, I bore myself in dust and ashes. I think about Achan in the Old Testament. In Joshua 7, verse 20, and Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And he goes on and tells him what he had done. But, you know, Achan doesn't really show godly sorrow. He just shows worldly regret because he got caught. Aaron and Miriam came against Moses in Numbers 12. They began to say things like, why, why would God only speak through Moses? Surely he's spoken through us. And that spirit rose up against him, against the leader. And, um, and, and, and God struck Miriam with leprosy, and Aaron was rebuked, and and they call out and said, we've done foolishly, we have sinned, and God forgave them. And I think they had godly repentance according to Numbers 12, 10, and 11. I think about King Saul in the Old Testament. You know, over and over and over, he said at least three times in the Bible, I have sinned. First Samuel 15, 24, Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Um, and then by verse 30 he says, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee before the elders. And and he goes on and repeats that later in, in 1 Samuel 26, 21. But he didn't really repent of that because he was just he, he felt bad for a time, but he would go back and do the same thing. And, and you see that, that, that lack of true, genuine repentance. David had godly repentance. There's no one in the Bible that's made this statement, I have sinned more than David. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord after Nathan confronted him. Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin. Psalm 51, 4, against thee only have I sinned. Psalm 41, 4, for I have sinned against thee. 2 Samuel 19, 20, I have sinned therefore. 2 Samuel 24, 10, uh, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. 2 Samuel 24, 17, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. I mean, David was the, was the out of all the people in the Bible, no one confessed their sin more than David. And, and I believe David was, was godly repentance. But I think, you know, sometimes we cast some stones at David, but I think all hell came against him. And, um, and, and, and he did so many wonderful things, but obviously had some great fallings. Uh, Daniel 9.5, it says, Daniel includes himself with the nation and says, we have sinned and committed iniquity and done iniquity, rebelled. And, and Daniel clearly had some godly repentance. Nehemiah says the same thing. In Nehemiah 1.6, he confessed the sins of him and his people. Micah had godly repentance. In Micah 7.9, he says, because I have sinned against him. Uh, I think about Judas had worldly sorrow. We talked about him. Uh, Matthew 27.4, uh, Judas said, I have sinned and that I have betrayed innocent blood. But and, 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 the, and the leaders of the Jews said, what is that to us? They didn't care. I think about Peter had godly repentance in Luke 5.8. When Peter saw what Jesus had done on the shore that day at Galilee, he said, I, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And, and I think one last example of somebody who had godly sorrow and repentance was uh, the prodigal son in Luke 15, 8. Do you remember when he said, I will arise and go to my father and say to my father, I have sinned. I think it's important to understand that phrase, I have sinned. First of all, it's not I made a mistake. I messed up. You know, I, we like to, we like to um, sanctify our sin, don't we? By definitions. We need to say, you know what? I sinned against God. I've wronged the Lord. When's the last time the words, I have sinned, come out of your mouth? There needs to be a, a, a confession of our sin. Lord, I, I have sinned in how I thought. I sinned in what I said. I sinned in what I did. God, forgive me of that. And, um, 
make sure that it's, it's a godly sorrow because godly sorrow leads to repentance. It leads to a true change. Worldly regret just makes you feel bad. You wish you didn't get caught. You wish it didn't happen to you. You're not glad about what you've done, but you'll just continue the patterns. Then you've not truly repented because repentance means that you're not going in that same direction. Uh, let, me, let me close out fourthly with the fruits of true biblical repentance. It's verse 11 through 16. Uh, verse 11 can be a little bit confusing. He says, for, for behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. He said, you, did a, you sorrowed after a godly sort. And then he goes on to list seven fruits of that repentance. Uh, these are, these are, these are um, some have called these the sevenfold fruit of godly sorrow and repentance. But he breaks down seven different words here, and, 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 and he's really passionate about this. He's like, behold, uh, th- this is something that he's intense about. And he, and he uses the word what before every word, showing the emotional uh, excitement that he has about this, the joy that he has about this. Because when Titus came back and let Paul know, they, they repented, they got right, they were sorrowful over what they had done, and, and, um, and, and it brought joy to Paul, and, and he highlights this. So, so as we see this, it will help also show us if what we're doing is true biblical repentance, or if it's just worldly regret and worldly sorrow. The first thing he says here, he says, what carefulness it wrought in you. The word carefulness is a word that means diligence or haste. This speaks of the immediate response of a person that's repenting to do the right thing. They weren't complacent about the letter that he sent. When they found out what they did wrong and they were confronted, they got right immediately. They were careful and hasteful to do what was right. Um, What a joy it is when you confront somebody in sin and they say, you know what, I'm going to get right about that right now, and they go get right. I think about Joshua and Achan. Joshua was on his face praying, and God says, stop praying, get up, and go deal with the sin. And he confronted Achan, found out through the casting of lots and so forth, and uh, Achan was taken and his family, and the sin was exposed. So if you're out of line with God, make sure you do that immediately. When you're repentant, you don't say, well, you know, let, me, let me think about that for a few days. No, you're, you're going to get right now. You're going to get right as soon as possible. Secondly, he says, yea, what clearing of yourself. It's the word, the word clearing there comes from the Greek word apologia, where we get the word apologetics from, and it means a defense or a speech of defense. And here it's speaking about their desire to get their name cleared of the sin. They want, they want to be cleared in this matter. That's why, that's why it's, it's translated here uh, in our text, clearing of yourselves. It is to know that you've done wrong, to know that you're guilty, and you want to have that guilt removed, and you take the steps immediately to make sure that's done. He says, he says you, were, you were careful to do it right away, and you sought to get yourself cleared of this sin. Thirdly, he says, yea, what indignation. This is, this is a word that speaks of their emotional disturbance. They were upset about the sin that they committed. Thomas Watson, uh, in 1660, uh, had a sermon called Gospel Morning. And he says, gospel mourning must be joined with hatred of sin. We must not only abstain from sin, but abhor sin. A true mourner is a sin hater. To be a sin hater implies two things. First, you look upon the sin as the most deadly evil, as the essence of all evil. It looks more ghastly than death or hell. Second, to be implacably incensed against it. A sin hater will never admit of any terms of peace. The war between him and sin is like the war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, where there was never peace between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The mourning begins in the love of God and ends in the hatred of sin. 
That's why Psalm 97.10 says, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. That They join together. When you fall in love with Christ, you hate everything that would destroy that walk with Christ. Psalm 119.4 says, Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. That's why Paul said in Romans 12.9, Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. And then he goes on, number four, he says, Yea, what fear. They had a godly fear that produced a cleansing of their life. It was said of Job that he was a man who feared God and eschewed or shunned evil. This fear is not only outward uh, toward God, but it's also um, a fear of the sin that can pull you back down. David Guzik writes, Paul isn't writing simply about the fear of God here as much as the fear of sin and a fear of our own weakness towards sin. Anybody ever feared sin because like, hey, I'm not going to go there because I know what that could do to me. I don't want to be around that environment. I don't want to, I don't want to hear that stuff. I don't want to be involved around that, even that environment like you. And that's a wonderful thing. You're like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. You're like, I know how heavy the burden was, and I don't want that weight coming back on top of me. Uh, he says, yea, also, number five, what vehement desire. This speaks about their desire to have the right relationship with Paul restored. They, they longed for that um, and, and, and when you're out of line with, with, with a brother or sister in Christ and with the Lord, you, you long for that restoration. They had that great desire. It says, yea, what zeal. That speaks about their eagerness and earnestness. They were now passionately setting themselves against sin. They were fervent to be made right with God and Paul. And then he closes by saying, yea, what revenge. Uh, that word is ekdikakes in the Greek. It means the meeting out of justice. The trait depicts genuine repentance as seeking repayment of any damages or losses incurred when the, in the unrepentant state. Uh, a repentant person seeks justice to be done. They want, to rest, they want restitution for any wrongs that have been committed. Uh, they, they were, so when he says, yea, what revenge, yea, what desire to have things restored, uh, to, 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 to restitution to be, uh, to happen, any things that need to be righted, that you would meet that out. If you owed someone money, that you would pay that. If you owed someone some deed to happen, you would have restored that. And, and, it's, and it's a longing for that. So, so Paul here is, is praising them in verse 11 for all of the good fruits that have happened out of repentance. So when somebody says, hey, I've repented of that, I've turned from that, then, then these things should show up. He says in verse 11 at the end there, he says, in all things you've approved yourself to be clear in this matter. You've cleared yourself. The guilt is gone. It's settled. It's done. It's finished. It's in the past. Reconciliation's happened. Praise God they move forward. Now Paul's love to them was affirmed in verse number 12. He goes on and says, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong. Now, as I read this, you just need to understand there are some details about this situation that theologians disagree on. They we're not sure exactly of the situation. Is this talking about the guy in 1 Corinthians 5? It also had to deal with the guy uh, earlier in 2 Corinthians of a guy that was speaking openly and in, 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 uh, causing um, rebuke against Paul and, 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 and causing uh, disruption in the church there at Corinth. Like, like, what is he specifically talking about? This is such a personal letter. It's the most personal letter that Paul ever wrote. But what's, what's interesting is he guards against naming anyone. Did you notice that? So theologians who just, just comb over the scriptures are at, are at 
total, like just so much disagreement about what exactly is the situation in the person specifically that he's talking about. Well, this, this is beautiful to me because it's saying that I don't need to bring that guy's name in front of everybody uh, because when you have a sin, you go to that person alone and, and you deal with it at the level that it needs to be dealt with. But what he's showing here is, is when somebody sins, you need to go to them, you need to confront them, you need to deal with that, but you don't need to ever let everybody know about what that person's name is and who they were and, and, and highlight that on social media. That is one of the most sinful things sometimes people can do. Well, I'm going to let everybody know that this person, you know, that's, that is so sinful. You can be sinned against, and then you can turn around and sin right back against them, and it's just as bad. So, so here, Paul is affirming his love to them. He says, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for the cause of uh, him that had, the cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. He says, I wrote unto you because I wanted you to know how much we loved you. And you know, love confronts. Sometimes people say, you know what, it's, that's between them and the Lord, and then they just let the situation go. That is an unloving spirit. Because if you love them, you would not want them to continue going away from God. Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as the Son, the Father, in whom, uh, the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. Revelation 3.19, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke. And chase and be zealous, therefore, and repent. Love confronts because it doesn't want, it knows how destructive sin is. And when you love someone, you will go through the discomfort of going and talking to them. Not in pride, not in arrogance, not in a boast, not, not in a condemning way, but you'll go to them with tears, if it were, in your eyes, saying, friend, it's breaking my heart to see you go down this road, and I'd hate to see what would happen to you. I want to know that I, I need to talk to you about this. Can't let you keep going down this road. You can't change them, but you can confront them with the truth and in love. Amen? Comfort and joy were restored in verse 13. He says, therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceeding the more joy uh, we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. He was refreshed. There was joy. There was comfort. Uh, everything's just fantastic because he did it in a biblical way, and there was biblical fruit from it. Verse 14, notice he says, for if I boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we have spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, has found a truth. Again, uh, this, is, this is 1 Corinthians 13, 7, that love hopes all things, that believes all things. He believed that they would respond the right way. He believed that, hey, if I confront the church of Corinth, I know they have all these problems. I've written them multiple letters. They're a mess. But I believe that they're going to respond the right way. I, I trust that the outcome is going to be good. That's what love does. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't condemn them. It, give, it counts them innocent until proven guilty. He, he believed, he hoped the best, and he says, I boasted of you, I spoke well of you, and, and uh, that there would be a favorable outcome. I opt for a favorable outcome. That's what love does, and that's what he saw. Listen, it is an unloving thing to just say, oh, you know, no matter what I say to them, they're still going to, well, that... That's reflecting on you in some ways more than them. You need to go to that person. You need to love them. I mean, I mean, if somebody's living in sin, if, if, you, if you never confront them in a loving and truthful and gracious way, uh, maybe they grew up and never had anybody confront them. So if they go their whole life unconfronted, what will happen? You know, one of the, one of the it's not the easy thing for me as a pastor, but I, I deal with um, going to people all the time. I mean, it's, you know, 
and, and, and you know, if you want to know why there's church splits in this country, let me tell you. Some of you guys won't know this, but you need to know this very clearly. The reason that churches end up splitting is there's usually a pastor that never deals with sin in the church. That's why. That's exactly why. Just any church you know that's split, just ask yourself. Somebody didn't deal with it. They, they, turn their, they put their head in the sand, and they just don't want to confront it. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to go to it. They don't want to, well, it, you don't deal with sin. It's going to cause an infection behind the scenes. And uh, same thing in marriages, right? Well, there's nobody wants to deal with it. So what the spouses do, they end up sleeping in separate rooms over the years. Families separate. Listen, that, you know why there's unity at Lighthouse? You know why there's love and grace and truth? Because we come from all walks of life. We bring the criminals and the cops together here, okay? It's, it's because Christ saves and he can bring together people from all different walks of life. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And, and you say, well, there's been times where I've disagreed with somebody else. Yes, because we're, you disagree with your own family, right? People, if you come to church, you're going to face that at times, but that's okay. Uh, that gives you a chance to show grace and mercy. People say, well, you know, there's problems in churches. I don't, you know why people get out of churches and don't become a part of a church or a member of a church? and get Because they, they're, 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 they don't want to, they, they love themselves more than people. So they protect themselves from relationships. So instead of being able to minister into the life of other people, they minister to themselves. So they protect themselves from people. They keep a distance. Don't dig too close. I've been hurt by people before. So they, 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 they keep a distance. But when you love people, you open your heart up to them. And sometimes that can hurt, but it allows you to love and minister and care and serve. I can tell you, if, if I let people who hurt me keep me at a distance, I would not pastor this church. I, I wouldn't be here. But, but you're worth, the, you're worth the the challenges that if ever, because the joy of you is greater than the pain of the few. You're, you're, you're worth it, and Christ is worth it to me. So, so value people more than yourself. Does that make sense? So, so just know that when you get into a place where you're just like, and, and, and you'll find people who do that. They just never join a church. They never get close enough. They never want to serve. They never want to. It's because they're so protected. They try to find a church big enough to where they can just sit away at a distance. And I can tell you, praise God that Jesus got close enough to be crucified for saving our souls. And he loves us enough to dwell inside of our hearts. And I can tell you, we hurt him every day. Amen. It's love that brings you close. It's love that says, you know what, I love that spouse, I'll never quit. It's love that says, till death do its part. It's love that keeps that parent loving their child and parent children loving their parents. That's what love does. So, so, so love hopes for the best. Obedience was produced in verse 15. He says, his inward affection is more independent toward you. Uh, while he remembered the obedience of you all, how that with fear and trembling you received him. They, they, they accepted what Paul said, they, they took that. They were obedient to the word of God. Verse 16, he says, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. And, 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 and this is just a wonderful conclusion. Uh, chapter 8 9 get into another wonderful set of truths that Paul's going to deal with and excited to jump into that. 
But in conclusion, biblical confrontation is necessary, first of all, in our own soul, but then also as we deal with other people. Is there someone in your life that you're at odds with, that some sin has caused a rift in your relationship? If you sinned against them, then go seek to reconcile that. Seek forgiveness. But before you go, make sure that you're right with God. Make sure you remove any sinful attitudes, any bitterness, any resentments in your own heart. Love seeks reconciliation. Paul loved the Corinthians and sought their church to be pure. When you love others, you'll desire them to be right with God. And listen to me. If someone ever comes to you in your entire life and and, and says, hey, you know, there's something I need to talk to you about and something that maybe you've wronged them or something that you've sinned and, 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 and they, they were exposed to that. Don't get defensive. Don't seek to protect something in your life that you need to repent of. One of the greatest acts of love somebody can do for you is to desire you to walk right with God when you're out of line. That's one of the greatest acts of love. Who actually cares enough about you to come to you? You know, they say, they say if you have enough people to carry your casket when you die you've done well you get into a loving church and you'll have a whole lot more than six people that you've come close to but I can tell you this do you have a do you have more than five or six people that love you enough that if you did something sinful and outward and noticeable that everybody saw it do you have enough people in your life that would come to you with tears in their eyes and say we need to talk I'll tell you what those are true friends those are the people that you need to hold on to because they love you more than their self and they love you enough to come to you. That, that's what Christ would want. You should wrap your arms around them and say, thank you. Thank you. Because you could have been that prodigal son who went into the far country and they, they, they became a, a, a roadblock and say, please reconsider. Please reconsider. Isn't Christ good enough? Isn't his mercy enough? Isn't his grace enough? Isn't, isn't Jesus worth it? Isn't your husband or wife who you love at home? Don't go do this thing. Be faithful. J.C. Ryle rightly said, true repentance is that one step that no man ever repented of. When you get right with God, you will always be glad you did.